In the year 480 BC, one of the greatest battles have been fought in ancient times that is remembered to even to this day. If I told you that it was called the Battle of Thermopylae, you would begin to understand, and maybe many of you would even understand one of the sides and who was involved in that, and you would say it was the Spartans. Maybe most of us wouldn't understand who else was there and why it was fought, but we would understand the Spartans because, you see, they, they lost the battle, but it is the Spartans that are remembered down through history for some extraordinary characteristics. You see, Xerxes, his father was Darius, and Darius had taken the Persian army over into Greece, and he was going to conquer uh, what little part of the world that the Persian Empire did not already own. And when he got there in 490 BC, he was defeated at a famous battle called the Battle of Marathon, where you get that word today. So Darius had to go home and try to regather and regather his troops, but what, uh, before he could finish the task, he had a, a rebellion in Egypt, and so he had to go and take care of the rebellion. Sometime during that time, Darius dies, and Xerxes comes to power, and so the first thing he does is he goes down to Egypt, and he takes care of business, and he absolutely squashes the rebellion. And then he raises an army of two million strong, and then he marches back to finish what his father couldn't finish. When he gets to Greece, he does not find a mighty nation full of uh, millions of people. He doesn't find technology and people that were uh, just waiting for war and had been preparing it for years or anything like that. He, he doesn't find that at all. He, he, he absolutely finds this little country with very few people and population compared to his own, his own army. But what he also ran into there were 300 Spartans, the heart and the soul of the warrior class. And they would go down as a, as a legend about uh, dedication and commitment. That all else they would throw off, that they would live the austere life such so that if you were to, to camp out or live in some kind of condition that wasn't very comfortable, you'd say, well, that's Spartan condition. That's where you get that word because they threw everything off. They had a complete focus on one thing and that was to be the warrior in the first class for the Spartans, and all else was secondary and just didn't matter. The second thing is their training regiment is legendary. It goes down, they would train for 10 to 15 years before they could graduate and be a first-class warrior for the Spartan society. And you'd say, well, who would make it? Probably those who survived the training. The special forces pull inspiration from that training today. And the third thing is that they understood what John Cackleman was talking about this morning, and that is brotherhood, a spree de corps, a sense of unit, a fellowship that was beyond anything Xerxes and the Persians had ever seen. And the fourth was they were masters of strategy and tactics for terrain and the environment. You know, Paul writes a letter to the Philippian church he says, I count it necessary to you to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need in Philippians 2 and 25. If I told you to go to your Bible right now and pull out the book to Aphia, our sister, written by Timothy, would you know what book to go to? I don't imagine most of us would. We would think it's just Paul and Philemon, but there are others involved. Paul and Timothy both write the book, and then it says not only to Philemon, but to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church which is in thy house. 
And then he tells Timothy, you know, Paul is, Paul's relationship with Timothy has got to be almost beyond our understanding. You talk about an austere and lonely life that Paul is living, even with people around him. He's very alone, and as he looks at the eve of his life, as he looks at the very dusk, he knows his time is short. He knows that God is just about finished with him, and his pen is going to go silent for the rest of history. But he's got this beloved relationship with this young man who, who among all others, he looked down the road that Paul looked at. He didn't look to the right. He didn't look to the left. He never turned around. He marches on with Paul, and he's probably idolizing Paul. And it's Timothy and Paul, and he writes to him, and it's almost the very last words he writes, and he says, Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in service entangleth himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has enrolled him as a soldier. Timothy, don't get sidetracked with all the things that are out there. You see, when when Paul uses the epithet of soldier, the appellation is, I, we talk about wrestling with flesh and blood. It's not ours. It's a spiritual warfare. We talk about the armor. But I think in this situation, Paul is referring to this austere life of the soldier, the hardship that you have blinders on and so much focus that all else doesn't matter but your inscription to the king and the service of his kingdom. And that's what Paul is talking about. You see, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I that live, not me, not mine, not my wants, not the things that I would like. That's gone and dead. And that life that I live in the flesh, oh, I live in faith. The faith which is in the Son of God. You know the rest of the song. That's the American Standard Version of Galatians 2 and 20. Galatians 6 and 14, Paul said, but, but far be it from me to glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I into the world. I don't think there's a better poetic prose. There's no more uh, rhyme and in, in, in verse than that that encapsulates the Christian discipleship. That Paul said, and you know what? We think the world he's talking about is the lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's included. It's included. No, you know what it is. It's what you like to do. It's your joy in life. It's the things that we entertain ourselves with. It's, the, it's all the things that they may not be bad in and of itself, but it's distracting. And it pulls you away. It entangles you in the things of this life. Not bad by itself. But Paul said all of that is put away. And he uses the word, it's been crucified unto me. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read here, I think, the same idea. There is no more mighty man to idolize than Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share the ill treatment with the people of God, rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now listen at this, counting the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked into the recompense of reward. We think, well, you know, Moses just walked away from comfort and luxury, a little bit of coin. No, no, don't fool yourself. 
Moses walked away from an empire. Do we get that? It was a world empire. He didn't walk away and abdicate the throne just because he said, you know what, I, I'm not into that. I just kind of want to run off and do my own thing. We've had people that done that. We, we had a king of England walked off because he was a Nazi. And he said, no, I don't want to rule here. I'm going to go over here and join Hitler, you know. We've had people walk away from a throne. But Moses left the empire to share in the ill treatment of a slave class people. Because God meant more to him. You remember Moses and all of his strength, what he traded it in for was this life, this, this almost miserable life. Oh, yes, he had this highlights. I mean, who, who could have been on the top of Mount Sinai but Moses? But he's also the one that was down in the dust that had a nervous breakdown that just, he was nursemaid to the stiff-necked people. And he said, Jehovah, just kill me. I can't do it anymore. That's what Moses traded in. And the Hebrew writer says, the discipleship of Christ, you need to think about that. And Paul said, crucify the things of the world. You know, when the Spartans came up to this narrow pass of Thermopylae, actually in the beginning they had about 6,000 warriors there. And then there was this sellout. There's always a traitor. There's always somebody that's really not loyal to the country they're living in. Just didn't care. So he goes over to Xerxes and he says, hey, this narrow pass that you're bottled up on and you guys are getting charged up about, if you send this people over to this mountain on this mountain pass, you could come around behind them. And so Xerxes takes advantage of that and he sends his troops up over the mountains and his main blocking force is about to go through this Thermopylae Strait, which is about 100 meters wide with mountains on one side and the sea coast on the other. But Leonidas knows this. He's the king of the, of the uh, Greek city-states, the field general, and he's with the Spartans, and he knows this. And so he, he, much like, I guess, maybe George Washington, knowing that you have to survive in the field to let your forces fight another day. So he says, you know what? You 6,000 go home because we're about to be surrounded, and then it's no longer our terrain. It's, it's the enemy's. So he's going to send them home, but while he does that, he, somebody has to block the main force of Xerxes' force. And there's 400 Thebians, and there's 700 Thesbians, and there's 300 Spartans. And they line up with the Spartans in front, and they said, you guys just feed us the things we need, but we've got this. Now, Xerxes looks at it, and he's got about 200,000 strong at this point. He can't believe it. So his lieutenant sends a message over that says, do you realize when this starts, we're going to send arrows up into the sky so much it's going to blacken the sun? And Leonidas' lieutenant sends back, and he says, that's fine with us. We'd rather fight in the shade. Do you get the sense where even a worldly individual could be so dedicated and so committed and so focused to what they're going to do that not, nothing else matters, not even death, but what they were afraid of was failure in the battlefield of fighting honorably, courageously. That should conjure up something in us. 
And so finally Xerxes goes, all right, enough of this. This is just unbelievable. So he sends a message directly king to king, field general to field general. He says, we're coming in there. He goes, I love what you're doing and what you're about. If you lay your arms down, we will pay you. And you will work for us. I will conscript you. And you can live the life of luxury. You can have it all. And you just fight with us. That's how he gathered his armies. They weren't all from right around where he lived. And so Leonidas has this chance to just say, you know what, you're right, we're going to die anyway. But no, he sends back. Xerxes had said, lay your arms down. Lay your shield down, lay your sword down. And then Leonidas comes back with that famous, Malon Lebe, come and get them. Come and get them. A motto of brotherhood that says, we're here to die. And we're going to make it costly on you. And Paul says, you have a motto too. He tells the Corinthians in chapter 1, he's talking about, he says, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, that's foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jew. And in chapter 2, he is talking about things there. He says, he's going to go through the, the greatest chapter of inspiration. If you don't understand Corinthians chapter 2, then you don't understand the Bible, how the mind of God became the oracles of God and the holy writ that you hold in your hand, and you probably don't appreciate it enough. But when he begins that discussion, when he first starts talking about it, he tells them, he says, but we preach Christ, or he says, I, I determined not to know anything among you, which is his way of saying it's not Grecian rhetoric, it's not philosophy, it's not existentialism, all the wisdom, I could tell you who I was, where I got to school, all the things that I know. He said, no, you know what? I determined nothing among, I didn't know anything save what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the motto. Jesus Christos. Kai Tuton. Storao. Crucified. It's one little word. But if you're with me in my Sunday morning class, and we've had in the last couple quarters, oh, how rich it was just to, to learn what was behind that word, that in God's mind is wisdom, is power, everything from the beginning of time all the way forward to the cross, to that word, crucified. Foolishness to the world, but to the Christian, the power of God. And everything that happens, no matter how many years the world goes on, it all looks back to that point on Calvary. And Paul says, you have a motto too. And that's what it would look like on your shield. And they were individuals, the Spartans, that were known for their training regiment. They would spend 10 to 15 years. And, if, and, and you'd say, well, who would become this warrior class? Those who survived the training that's what we did. You know, my dad went through pilot training in the Korean War. Who got their wings? Those who survived the training. It was the beginning and the dawn of the jet age, which was also the beginning of the lawn dart. They would lose more men in training than they did in the battlefield, and that's kind of the way the Spartan regiment was. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, 1 and 2, what do you read about David's mighty men? And they come into David and to Ziklag... And this is when David held himself close because of Saul, the son of Kish. And these were among the mighty men, his helpers in war. And they were armed with the bow, and they could use the right hand and their left, and slinging stones and shooting arrows from the bow. They were of Saul's brethren, the Benjamites. 
Now, that's just one short little passage in the Bible. What does that mean to you, a mighty man that can sling a stone left-handed and right just as well? Instead of reading Thucydides, instead of reading Herodotus, instead of going back to the histories, how do you know that somebody would spend their entire life trying to be that dexterous with the weapons of war? Here, this is because it's common sense. It's human nature. If your life depended upon it, would you do anything else? Would you do anything else? The Spartans would sling a rock with their left or their right about 50 yards and break a six-by-six plate with either hand, and they would do it with the sword, and they would train so much the muscles would ache, and they would physically have to pry their fingers off the sword. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, give diligence. I like the word in the American standard, give diligence to show thyself or present thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth. You know what diligence means? It's get your fingers down in the dirt. It means it's, it's labor. And the word workman is that, that the, the individual that David Free would probably know of as a, you pile shingles on your shoulders and go up and down the ladder all day, taking them to the roof. It's, it's the laborer. It's the, here, I need this ditch dug right here, but they didn't have a trencher. People say, well, Scott, yeah, Bible study ought to be fun. You know what? Sometimes I can't wait to get up in the morning before the first light when my angels are sleeping in the back rooms and to get into God's Word and prayer and study. But friends, let's be frank. It's not always that way. You know what? Anything that's worthwhile is difficult. You can have a passion to learn French, but it's not easy It's the goal you have in mind, and it's the passion you have. My girls love to play soccer, but if you saw them in July, when everybody else is, you know, kind of goofing off, and they get up at 6 in the morning and run 10 100-yard sprints to get themselves sick right before breakfast, it's it's, it's difficult. And if you're not going at that... God's word to say, look, it doesn't matter if it's fun to you. There will be times when you're excited. It will be fun sometimes. If it was fun, they would be out there studying their Bible too. We cannot be distracted until your fingers have to be peeled off and your forearms are aching and there's a burn in your shoulders because you understand that your life depends upon it. And rightly dividing the word, this is the way I think of it, the precision of a surgeon cutting, but with the power of a warrior with a battle axe. And that's what you're going to need outside the wire. And we need everybody outside the wire. And we're all in this together as fellow soldiers. And the Spartans understood. They see, they could go into battle and lose a sword. They could lose an arrow. They could, they could drop their breastplate. They'd probably just get whipped. No big deal for them. But if they dropped their shield, they said, you better be carried off on. Why would that be? 
Because the shield would be used and dovetailed with the man on the right and the man on the left and the man behind and the man in front. And they would dovetail all their shields together so that your survival depended upon my shield and how I carried it. That's brotherhood and understanding. Everybody's in this. You know, in Judges chapter 4, in verse 21, we read about one of the most gruesome events Maybe I should have picked a better example, but I'm going to ask you this. When Sisera comes back to the tent, Heber's not there, but Jael, his wife, is. And, you know, he's exhausted. He's running from the armies of God. He's a Canaanite. And he says, I'm really tired. She says, oh, come into my tent. Lay down here. I'll cover you with this carpet. Oh, I'm so thirsty. I'm so parched. Well, here's some warm milk, fresh milk. little tryptophan. Don't worry about that. That'll help you. Cicero goes down into a deep, deep sleep until he begins to dream about tent pegs. Now, my question to you is this. Why did she do that? Why did she do that? It's a trick question. You're thinking in your mind, why did she do that? And what I'm telling you and asking you is, why did she do that? Because she was the only one there. Women, prepare yourselves for duty outside the wire. There will not always be Christian headship wherever you are. We are to submit one to another. We are to submit to the authorities. There is a natural headship in the home, Christian or not. But there is no pagan male headship over a Christian woman with the things pertaining to God. And why are we doing that? Propeller yourself. Your father, your husband will always be there. We've got some of the greatest workers right here in this fellowship of the female persuasion. We need to have our young ladies begin to watch and talk with them and study with them. And the last thing I will show you is that the Spartans were absolute master strategists when it came to terrain and the tactics of terrain and environment. They knew Thermopylae was very narrow. They knew that they would have to take an entire huge overwhelming force and narrow them into the gap. And so that's what they did. And they knew that if the enemy came up behind them, they no longer owned that terrain and they'd have to do something else. Go to Luke chapter 22, 54 and 55. If not just in your mind, I'm sure you know it. But... This is something we went through on Sunday morning in the class. I can't help but to kind of retread this because it's so, it's just so poignant, so valuable. You see, here is when Jesus is arrested and, and, and that's the that context of what's happening. And it says, and when they seized him, they led him away. And they took him unto the high priest's house. But Peter followed afar off. What separated Peter from Jesus? Fear, fear. And then it says, and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the court, and they had sat down together, and before we go on, who's the they? Who's the they that kindled the fire? 
If you were in the garden, who would you have seen? You would have seen the high priest representatives, the servant of the high priest, the officers of the temple, the temple guard that had real authority, real police authority there. And you would have seen Pilate's soldiers. Yes, interesting enough, very unusual, but we're told that the band was there. Pilate had this unique relationship with the high priesthood. You'd have to kind of trace that out. We have not the time this morning But all of those people, and then once you get to the two big palaces where these religious leaders are are living, and there's a kind of an elevated platform, indoor-outdoor portico, and then down here is the court. Now, they don't need you as the Sanhedrin begins to gather in the wee hours of the night, and and all this excitement is starting to bubble up, but, but the maids and the servants and the soldiers, they're all there, and what do they do? It's cold, it's dark, and they, they kindle this fire. And then it says what? And Peter sat in the midst of them. Folks, do you not see the dark clouds foreboding going over Peter's head at this point? Without reading the rest of the story, do you not think that maybe you could kind of see that this is about to be the lowest point in Peter's life? You see, he was the one that said, not me, Lord. I'm with you all the way. But fear shook him to the core, and now his faith isn't where it was, and he's separated from Jesus. He's not in there. Maybe John was. That'll be a question to ask someday. What is that relationship, John, with you and the high priest? But right now, Peter's alone. He's separated from Jesus. And where is he? He sits down in the midst of the enemy. You think he's going to do well? Or is it going to be something where he just shames himself and goes out and buries his head? Paul said, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why do we have to turn that into a science project? Is that not straightforward? For what fellowship does righteousness and iniquity, and what communion hath light with darkness? In fact, he goes on to say, that's like Jesus and Belial. That's like Jesus and and, and evil and Satan's forces. They, they, They don't mix. Be not unequally yoked. This is where we usually get into a really great debate of saying, well, we can't pull ourselves out of society. I'd like for you to try because there's nobody I know that's going to do that. Unless you're ready to run off to St. Catharines or something at Mount Sinai, you're not going to separate yourself from society. Folks, even the Amish have interaction with the people in Lancaster. Yeah, those boys didn't grow up with pacifiers. They grew up with hammers and they teethed on them. And now they're working in the factories building RVs and they're working in mass, but they're working along with the the culture around them. But they're not alone and they're not cut off. Some of us say, well, you know what? I, I want my children to learn to deal with it. Number one, your children are dealing with things that you never dreamed of. Number two, they're dealing with things that you and I did not deal with in the public school 40, 30 years ago. No. Watch what happens with Lot. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, 7 and 8, 
God delivered righteous Lot, sore distressed by the lascivious life of the wicked. For that righteous man, in dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their lawless deeds. Who, who vexed Lot's soul? He did. When he made a choice. He made a choice to pitch his tent towards Sodom. I can't tell you what Sodom is for you. I can't tell you if it's a workplace. I can't tell you if it's a school. I can't tell you if it's a, the friends you hang out with. I can't tell you if it's the cozy mosey down here where you're going to throw darts. Well, I can't tell you what it is. But you could ask yourself, how does daughters deal with it? Folks, when they fled Sodom, they were morally bankrupt. How does wife do? Killed by the finger of God because she thought something was back there that she enjoyed and liked. That was her home. How do son-in-laws do? They ate fire and brimstone and washed them down with God's anger. They didn't do well. Don't put yourself in that position. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and think through this. That's why I'm here. Because I haven't found a better band of fellow soldiers. You know, 1 Peter 2 and 9 says that, well, the King James says you're peculiar people. You know, American Standard doesn't say that. People for God's own possession. But I like the King James. It's a peculiar people. And I'd say this, maybe that's our problem. I I don't want to be peculiar. I mean, I see gift. Maybe some people, like if you wear Converse with your Sunday go to meeting clothes, maybe you you want to be peculiar. I told them I'd give them honorable mention if I thought of them during the sermon. So there it is. But the rest of us, we don't want to be peculiar. I don't want my children to be peculiar. I don't want them to to receive any onslaught of, of unwanted attention that way. Let me tell you a story about the young man that we'll call Stevie in case any of you think you know him. But young Stevie was converted in a small Oklahoma town and was baptized into Christ and put on Christ in baptism. And he went out to march and and, and he was conscripted because Jesus had purchased his church with his blood and he understood all of that. And as he goes out, he he just wants to do something. Well, I got to tell you something about Stevie. Before he even became a Christian, people thought he was a geek. Nerd. That's what they call him at school. Now, he's a Bible geek. You see, he's, he's not the star of the basketball team. He probably hurt himself taking water out there on the court. But, but Stevie is a Christian. And every time the church wants a volunteer, Stevie's there. It didn't matter if the women were going to knit. Stevie showed up. He's over 16. He can drive. But he, like me, a lot of us just walked everywhere because we were too poor to drive. I remember those days. These kids don't know what that's like. But Stevie walked and he would go and every time somebody needed a volunteer, there was Stevie. It came to his attention though that he wasn't that effective in preaching the gospel and door knocking and doing the things, he, but he, he wanted to stay in service. And so he finally thinks about it and he goes, you know, I, I think I'm lonely. What about these people over here? And nah, I'm going I'm to offend somebody in the old folks home. That's what we used to call it before we were all trained to be sensitivity. But it's the old folks home. 
And he went to the old folks' home, and he walked in there, and the nurse says, what are you doing here? Who's your grandmother? What, who are you here to see? And he goes, well, I just want to read the Bible to him." She goes, if you don't have any relatives in here, and you haven't been invited, you don't belong in here. So Stevie started to walk out. As he's going out, you see the big foyer where it's the, kind of the day room where they're all sitting there just kind of looking, looking at each other, watching old reruns of I Love Lucy or something. And Stevie stops, the nurse leaves, and so he goes up to this woman, and she's just sitting at the table, and he looks, he's thinking, what is she doing? And there's no game, there's no, she's just sitting there, maybe waiting for a phone call or something from a loved one. Stevie says, would you like me to read the Bible to you? She brightens up, she looked at him, she said, yes, I would like that. So he opens his Bible and starts to read, and another lady came over and sat down, and they started, he's just reading away, and the nurse comes in and sees him and starts to walk over there, and he looks at her like, they want me to read the Bible. So she brushes him off, and he begins to read, and of course, they, his, his group of two don't, don't stay. They, they grow into about 50. He did it on Saturday night because Stevie... Wasn't going to be out dating on Saturday night. Had nowhere to go. He knew that's when he was lonely, but he also knew his homework was done and his friends were out doing things he shouldn't do. And so he went on Saturday night, walked all the way out there to the outskirts of town, and he would read the Bible to them. And then on a Saturday night, it got dark, it's late fall, the sun's going down early, and he starts walking home, and he's going down through the, the, by the barbed wire, the, the wheat field there. If you've ever lived in Oklahoma, you could picture it, smell it, and feel the wind right now as I'm talking about it. He's walking there, going against traffic, and, and a car full of football players come by, and they won the big game on Friday night. It's a big deal to them, and boy, they're, they're already drinking. They're just hucking it up. They're going to have a great time, and as they go by, one of them goes, that's that Bible geek. He's in my house algebra class so the guy driving goes really he goes what's this he turns the car around he goes let's scare him oh this is going to be great so stevie's facing the other way walking along facing traffic the way he needs they start speeding up they cross over the center line boy he's accelerating it now he's like what's this we're gonna get right next to this guy he gets right before Stevie and the left front tire just drops off of the edge of the road and the shoulder's steeper than he thought and it yanks the wheel over about two feet and there goes Stevie on the front of the car. They were afraid so they ran with a crush car and Stevie lays in the Oklahoma night fighting for life. His sister stands up at his funeral and for some reason, much of the school turns out. Maybe he had more influence than he thought. They just didn't want to admit it in front of their friends. She gets up and she says, you know, we all talk about being Christians. And we say it should be the, only, it should be the, the priority of your life to put Christ first. She goes, my brother was a lot weirder and more peculiar than you even think. She goes, he never said that. He thought being a disciple of Christ was the only important thing. The only important thing to my brother. Later, she got brave enough to go out to that site 
And as the sun went down, she was seen over on the side of the road and she was digging her fingers in the dirt and she had tears coming down her face and she was crying out to God saying, why? Why? Then she got in her car and she couldn't hardly drive and as she's driving away, she turns the corner about a quarter mile away, she sees something blowing on the barbed wire fence. She had a feeling. She stops the car, she goes over, and it's pages from Stevie's Bible. And then she has her answer. There is no life more important than the power of God's hope because Stevie crossed into the promised land and was in the Abraham's bosom And he believed in the spread of the gospel as the only important thing. And then she understood. You know, the Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 2 and verse 20, or 12, it's a fulfillment of Psalms 22, 22. The first time Jesus calls anybody his brethren in the church, the congregation, his disciples was after his resurrection. To Mary Magdalene, go tell my brethren. And Psalms 22, 22 is, is quoted by the Hebrew writer where it's speaking about Jesus in the church. And he said, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. And in the congregation will I sing thy praise. Now, I don't know how you want to take that, but I take it that that fulfillment is somehow Jesus with the church today, his people. His people. And can't you imagine he's looking for another Stevie? Can't you imagine he's looking for somebody that understands that the Spartans have nothing on the soldiers of Christ Because we have nothing in our way and we're focused on the cross. Everything from history and everything going back to the only point that matters. The spread of the gospel. I call you members and you call me brother. But today we call each other fellow soldiers. And I'm honored to call you fellow soldiers. And there's no other place to be and to start conscripted into God's service in his kingdom to be a soldier and let all and everything else go in the world and understand the hope and the hope, the love, and the mercy that's waiting for us. My fellow soldiers, those of you that are in Christ are conscripted into his service, and those of you who are not, you can be so this morning. And anybody that has any need to be able to march on with the soldiers of Christ, then I invite you to come this